16. Probably should have just about memorized this by now. <laughs> blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were fir the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how perfect you are. You are worthy of all praise. Your name is absolutely higher than every other name. It is the only thing we should boast about. Your works are too wonderful for us to fully grasp, and your saving grace too precious for us not to strive to understand. So help us, Father, this morning to understand you more clearly and to trust in you more fully. Help us to fear you more specifically and to love you more intensely. And help us to serve those near us without hesitation and to revel in your knowledge that you approve of it. You are our, ever, you are our everything, Father. And help us to always keep you in focus. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word, and it is a banquet table laid out for us. God, we pray that you would give us appetites to feast, and that in doing so, we would eat the kind of food that causes us to never hunger, and drink the, the drink that never enables us to thirst again. God, we thank you. We bless you. We pray that the Spirit of God would be active and working in our hearts and our minds to open the eyes of our understanding and enable us to know what it is you have for us today. For Jesus' sake, and in his name we pray, amen. Well, we continue, as you might have guessed, to work through this first chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. In chapter one, as we've seen, Paul begins his letter by celebrating, that's the only word you can use for it, celebrating the spiritual gifts that God has given to us, blessings that are ours because of what Jesus has done on the cross. In the past few weeks, we've been looking at this first blessing, God's sovereign election of his church. Today, we move on to the next blessing that Paul says much less about. He spends a lot more time talking about election, but he says some very precious things, and what we're looking at today should be 
so valued and so treasured by every believer. The second blessing Paul treats is in verse 7. In him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So this blessing is the blessing of redemption. Now, blessing is one of those theological terms about which most believers have some general ideas as to its meaning. It's terribly important for believers to be intimately acquainted with this term because it's near the absolute center of what God does in a person when he saves him or her. Redemption as a word, of course, is found in both the Old and the New Testament, and it means mostly the same thing in both. Now, before I move forward, it is possible that some of you are thinking, perhaps, oh boy, here we go again. Sounds like more theology to me, and after four weeks of elections, stick a fork in me, I'm done. <laughs> let me just say, let me give you a lens through which to look at these kind of passages that have a lot of theological language in them, um, because we want to experience the blessing that they're intended to convey. But sometimes we need to read them with the right set of lenses. And I think the lens that we need to use is the one that David used in Psalm 27. David comes to God as he does so many times in the Psalms and he's experiencing great trial and great affliction. Evil doers are assailing him. He's looking into the ranks of his adversaries and his foes. And he brings all of that to God and he tells us how he responds to that in verse 4. And he says one thing. I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's what we're doing in Ephesians chapter 1. We're gazing at the beauty today of our Redeemer, and we're using profoundly theological language because the beauty of Christ is wrapped in theological truth and it is expressed in theological language. So if this, this does begin to feel just a bit heavy at points, and I don't think it will, but if it does, just remember Jesus is Redeemer and Jesus is our justifier and Jesus is our propitiation. They're all powerful expressions of the beauty of the Lord. There are three parts, really, to this word redeem in terms of its meaning. First of all, it means deliverance from bondage. When we think about redemption, we should think probably first of deliverance from bondage, from imprisonment, from captivity. This we see in places like the Old Testament in chapter 6, verse 6. God says to Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. The central act of redemption in the Old Testament is the exodus of God's people out of Egypt. That pointed in some very powerful ways to the great act of redemption in all of the Bible, which of course is at the Calvary. A second element of redemption, as we think about it, is to buy back at cost, or we could say this way, to pay a ransom. 1 Peter 1.18 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver 
or gold. This word translated ransom is the exact same word in the original as is elsewhere translated redeem. Sometimes it's translated ransom and sometimes it's translated redeem depending on what best fits the context, but it's the same word. This means that not only were we enslaved or imprisoned and in need of deliverance, that's the first piece, but a ransom price also had to be paid. A payment of a ransom price needed to be given to purchase our spiritual liberty. We were, spiritually speaking, the scripture says, in an inescapable dungeon of sin and death, so enslaved that we were blind to see how bad we were off. We didn't know the depth of our plight. But in order for us to be set free, a price needed to be paid to purchase our freedom that we could never, ever pay ourselves. And this ransom price was paid not to Satan, that's heresy. It was paid to God. The legal debt of our sin was owed to God. And in order for us to be delivered from sin, God required a ransom payment to free us from spiritual captivity. It's always important for us to remember that Christians are, at root, a purchased people. Somebody owns us. We do not own ourselves. We are the property of some being, God, if we're believers. This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So the fact that God's people are a purchased people is not simply an interesting theological truth. Paul expects the Corinthians, because they know they are purchased, they are bought, they are owned, he expects that to impact how they live sexually. This could hardly be more practical. Paul takes that theological truth and says, apply it here to your sexual lives. So being a redeemed or a ransomed person is something that we should be thinking about because it impacts our sanctification. It's a potent weapon in our battle as we fight for things like sexual purity. A third meaning of redemption is seen in the provision of a substitute. The provision of a substitute. The point is that the ransom payment to deliver us from sin must be of a specific kind in order to affect redemption. This is not like a ransom payment made in cash for someone who is being held as a hostage. No, this is much more costly than that. This ransom payment must be in the form of a substitute who would receive the punishment the spiritually enslaved inmate has earned in order to effect redemption. In the Old Testament, an animal was in some sense substituted for God's people in the case of sin offerings and other contexts to make the point to God's people that the forgiveness of sin requires the shedding of blood. That's what, that's what the point was. But the blood of animals could never redeem sinful human beings. That's not an equal match. This is why in Mark 10, 45, Jesus says of himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying, in effect, I am the ransom 
payment for the sins of my people, and my life alone will satisfy the debt they owe to God for their sins. As the sacrificial lamb of God, Jesus would offer himself as a substitute to liberate his people from the dungeon of sin and death in which they were imprisoned. Now this understanding of redemption does many things, but one of the things that it does that's most valuable to our soul is it enables us to see very closely the terrible plight of what it is to be an unredeemed sinner. And you don't grow spiritually unless you understand what you were before Jesus came into your life. Because if you don't know that, then you don't know what you've had done for you. You don't know the difference. It's very important to meditate on and internalize into your soul these three beautiful aspects of our redemption we've been looking at. You cannot live in gratitude until you know what you've been saved from. So it's really important for us to think about that, not for the purpose of morbid introspection, not for the purpose of, of self-pity, but for the purpose of seeing, and this is what God did for me in the midst of that destitution. One of the ways we preach the gospel to ourselves, which is really crucial for us to grow in grace, is to meditate on what we were before Christ saves us. For however long we lived before we became Christians, we were enslaved to sin and death as children of the devil. I spent the first 20 plus years of my life in prison. And for most of that, I was so bound up and blinded by my sin, I had no idea I was even in a state of enslavement. My cruel slave master, like yours, was sin which had killed me spiritually. And Satan was the warden of this prison whose agenda for me and for you before we're saved is to steal and kill and destroy. This is not a good place to be. This is the worst of all places to be. This is the miserable, pitiful plight of all sinners. And apart from Jesus, it is utterly hopeless. It couldn't be more hopeless apart from Christ. There's no way for the enslaved to escape their prison. And apart from God's grace, they don't even know they are enslaved. Many sinners are so enslaved that they actually enjoy some of what is most self-destructive about their prison. Had it not been for our Redeemer, we would have remained in that prison, not only for this life, but also for eternity, when we would have been transferred to an even more torturous and never-ending confinement. Charles Wesley was not exaggerating one whit when he wrote in the third verse of his great hymn, And Can It Be?, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Quickening means a, a ray that gives life. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's beautiful. You'll notice that uh, God didn't need permission for him to do that, right? If you are genuinely redeemed, like Wesley was, you genuinely want to follow your Redeemer out of that prison cell. You'll follow him anywhere because he set you free when you were sleeping the sleep of spiritual death in Satan's prison. Apart from anything you did, and before you were even seeking your liberty, 
He paid your debt on Calvary. He walked into that prison cell. The dungeon flamed with light. Your chains fell off. You were free. What a gorgeous picture of salvation. That's what this spiritual blessing in verse 7, redemption, is. But to incite even more gratitude for this blessing, we also need to spend some time looking more closely at what the redemption accomplishes in the life of a sinner. The first of three accomplishments of his redeeming work is found right here in verse 7. And these were accomplishments, I've been helped by this in John Piper's treatment of this text and look at the book. Very helpful. If you're ever interested in what Ephesians says, there is something in YouTube, look at the book, and it goes through every verse in this. Very helpful. Paul says, verse 7, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So let's unpack this work of redemption. And God's first accomplishment in our redemption is he brings forgiveness for our trespasses. Now, a trespass is an offense. It's a violation of a standard of behavior. And when the standard of behavior is from God, then to violate it is not simply to break a rule. It's a personal assailing of God. It's saying to God, I don't care what you say. I trespass against what your standard is. I'm stepping over the line. Perhaps the best way to unpack this aspect of our redemption is to go to the one place in the New Testament where more than any single passage we have a reasonably comprehensive view of the redemptive work of Christ and this is in Romans chapter 3 beginning in verse 23. If you want the gospel in the most compressed way in the New Testament it's Romans 3.23 to 26. This is the heart of the gospel. Begins with, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that's our problem, right? We've talked about that. We've sinned. We have not in our sinfulness met God's perfect standard of righteousness, which is the non-negotiable and immovable entrance requirement for heaven. You want to go to heaven? You must be righteous. Righteous like God is righteous. Verse 24 says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There it is. That tells us that the redeeming work on the cross of Jesus is necessary to justify sinners before God. Justification, another one of those words believers should be very, very familiar with. Justification is not the same thing as redemption, but redemption is what justifies the sinner before God. Justification is the work of God in issuing a legal declaration that the redeemed believer is not only forgiven of his or her sin, the penalty is removed, but you have also been given a righteousness, a legal standing before God that is alien to you. That is, it is not yours. It is given by somebody else. But it is, nonetheless, it's placed on the ledger of your personal record before God. That righteousness is placed on your ledger. The very righteousness of Christ. The perfect record of righteousness that he achieved with his 30 plus year record of perfect righteousness on earth, that record that he had is copied and pasted onto your life so that in God's sight you acquire the very righteousness of Christ. That's the heart of the gospel. The gospel stands or falls on that doctrine. As we said before, having your sins forgiven is wonderful. Having your sins forgiven does not qualify you for heaven. 
Being pardoned of your sin makes you morally neutral in God's sight. The entrance requirement for heaven is not moral neutrality. It is perfect righteousness. You must be morally perfect with God's righteousness or a righteousness that's like God's to qualify for heaven. And because we obviously do not possess that kind of righteousness on our own, when a person believes on Christ, God in his amazing grace imputes, another great theological word, imputes, copies and pastes Christ's righteousness onto our account, just as my sins were copied and pasted to Christ's account. And that's why he died on a cross, because he became sin for us. This state of being justified before God can only occur because of Christ's redeeming work. Verse 25 tells us how we're redeemed from our sins. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Our redemption is accomplished by the propitiation of our sins. I told you there was theological language. Remember, this is the beauty of Christ. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about the beauty of Christ here. Propitiation is another incredibly important word. Every Christian should know it very well because like redemption, it too is central to what God has done for you if you are a Christian. Christ's work of redemption propitiates or it appeases God's holy wrath against our sin. We sang about the wrath of God in Christ alone. God's anger or his wrath against our sin is not capricious. It's not uncontrolled. God doesn't fly off the handle. That's not what it means by wrath. This is the steady, absolutely inevitable anger of God that must be poured out against all sin because our sin is an offense against him. And as just judge, his wrath must be satisfied. As a just God, he must punish all sin if he doesn't punish all sin, he's not just, which means he's not God. God redeems us out of our enslavement to sin and death by putting forth Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. God puts forward his own sinless son as the only fitting substitute for the sinner in order to receive the just wrath that we deserve. In order for God to redeem us and purchase our forgiveness, there must be a substitute, a scapegoat, who takes the punishment that our sins deserve. And one of the primary reasons for God redeeming his people from their sin, as we read in verse 25, it was to show God's righteousness. So God sent Jesus to the cross to receive wrath in part to vindicate that God is indeed righteous, and as a righteous God, he punishes sin. Because until Christ had come, none of the sins had been punished. The blood of bulls and goats was not sufficient to propitiate God's wrath against sin. That required a perfect human sin offering to be put forward to pay the penalty for humanity's sin. Because God did not want to be left open to the charge that he had not justly punished sin, he sent Christ to receive the wrath for sin. 
sinned to prove that he was a just and righteous God. Another picture of Christ's redeeming work is in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. There Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and this uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our spiritual trespasses had killed us spiritually. We were dead in them. We needed to be given spiritual life, and a resurrection to new life was made possible when our legal trespasses were forgiven. Paul speaks of our sin as the record of debt here. That is, each one of our sinful attitudes, desires, and actions are recorded by God. And that record stands against us to condemn us to hell. It's the list of charges, any one of which damns us to hell. But rather than publicly post our sinful record to hold against us, instead God took that record and he publicly nailed it through the hands of Jesus and sticks it to the cross. And when Christ had received the due punishment for each and every sin, that record of sin was taken down off the cross with Jesus and was marked canceled. Paid in full which is what it is finished means. That's the word from the marketplace, tetelestai, paid in full, canceled debt. So Jesus canceled the record of debt that condemned us. That's how we were redeemed, by propitiation of God's just wrath against our sin. A second accomplishment through our redemption is in 1 Peter 1.18, which we read earlier. Knowing that you are ransomed, same word again, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. This aspect of the redeeming work of Christ addresses not the penalty for our sin. This is addresses the power over sin that we have, the power of sin that's in our life and the power over sin that we have to have to actually walk in ways that are not futile. Unbelievers walk in futile ways. That's his terminology here, Peter's which means vain, empty, and foolish, not counting for anything. These ways may promise satisfaction in life. They never bring it. They only intensify the enslavement to the lies of this world. Jesus as our Redeemer accomplished the freedom from sin's power so that we might be free to gradually, increasingly forsake futile ways. Paul says it this way in Titus 2.4. He's speaking of Jesus and said, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is not forgiveness. Our redemption also purchases for us a freedom to walk above the controlling power of sin so that we might do Good works. The sinner lives in lawlessness. They don't control their sinful impulses. They may not necessarily want to control them. The work of Jesus on the cross is given to quote John Wesley to break the power of canceled sin. To break the power 
of canceled sin in the life of the believer. God not only commands us to live in holiness, but in his redeeming work in us, he's also given us the power to live a holy life above the power of sin. We know this power comes to the believer through the Holy Spirit, and God lays out what it is about his redemptive work in the sinner that enables the person to live above sin's enslaving power. This is found in at least two places in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 31, 33, he's describing what this redemptive work was going to be. And he says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In Ezekiel 36, another new covenant passage, he's saying the same thing. He just says it differently. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What a glorious text. What a wonderful promise. When a person experiences the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, God gives them a new heart. And unlike their old heart, this one is supernaturally inclined to want to obey God, to do what he says in the power of the Spirit. Again, this does not accomplish spiritual perfection. That's not what this is. That waits for heaven. This redemption does bring, however, new and dramatically different direction to the life of a believer because a radical change has occurred within the heart of the redeemed person. Do we believe that? The point for us is that redemption does not simply mean to have our sins forgiven. The redeeming work of Christ also purchases for us a new way of life and a new relationship to the power of sin. A relationship that enables the believer to learn gradually and increasingly to overcome sin's power as we learn to walk by faith. And we have to learn how to do that. A final accomplishment of redemption is in Romans 8.23. Paul says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Redemption applied in a third way. Here it is. Christianity is different than every other religion because it places real value on the physical body. In the resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that these bodies, though they are perishable and destined to die, these bodies are also the seed that upon our death are planted in the ground and from these perishable bodies spring new imperishable, eternal, spiritual, glorious bodies. When they die, these bodies are not cast away as irrelevant. No, amazingly, they serve as the seed from which our spiritual, eternal, imperishable, glorious bodies will be formed. It's an amazing truth. When you go out to the cemetery and you stand in front of the grave of that, if the person's a believer, you need to be able to say, there's going to be a resurrection right here. Utilizing that decaying body as a seed that God uses as a point of a touchstone, a point of continuation between this life and the next. In this life, of course, these bodies, they get old, they wear out, they stop working, or at least working very well. They're fallen, they're under the curse, they're subject to futility and decay. But the resurrection bodies will be perfect and glorious. And amazingly, 
by the redeeming work of Christ on Calvary, the glorious eternal bodies are made possible. Jesus did something in redeeming us that affects our physical bodies in the future. When Christ hung on the cross, it purchased our forgiveness, it purchased our holiness in the sense that we learn to triumph over sin by his redemptive work, but we also, through his redemption, have future eternal bodies that will manifest the glory of Christ forever. The redemption of Jesus does so much for us. I hope we're just stuffed to the gills with this. As we close, two more brief observations about this spiritual blessing from Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says, in him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This redemption is specifically, as you know, through the blood of Jesus. Now, in the Bible, the blood, when used in these settings, always represents death. Because if you remove the blood, the life is in the blood. You remove the blood, you remove the life. The Old Testament teaches that the life of a person is in the blood. And it was the death of Jesus that was the purchase price, the ransom the Father paid to himself to satisfy his wrath, to conquer our sin, and to give us new resurrection bodies. Finally, we see that this redemption is according to the riches of his grace. This is very similar to what we saw with the blessing of God in God choosing sovereignly his people to be saved. In verse 6, there, there it said, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he was blessed us in the beloved. The point is, just as election points to the grace of God and is an expression of the unbelievable grace of God, so too does redemption come from the grace of God. And not just any grace. He says the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Those words are not wasted. They're there for a reason. Riches and lavish. And that's good news for us. This morning as we've looked at redemption, what we've been doing is we've been peering into the eternal infinite treasury of God, beholding the matchless, astonishing riches of God's grace in redemption. This grace is lavish, which means extreme generosity. This is grace with lots of grace left over. Grace with much more grace to spare. Because it is given so lavishly, we'll never run out of this grace of redemption. This would be akin to the ridiculously lavish generosity that if you went into a restaurant and you bought a grilled cheese sandwich and you left a million dollar tip. That's the kind of generosity this is. This is over the top. It's exorbitant. This is not sufficient grace. This is grace with much, much more grace to spare, and God gives it lavishly. This lavish provision of God's grace is a product, not of recklessness on God's part, but he says it comes from his wisdom and his insight. So the reason why he's so lavish is because of his wisdom and insight. Now, we don't know what all of that means, but certainly part of it is he gives us lavish grace in redemption because in his wisdom, he knows we're going to need it. <laughs> we're going to need extravagant grace. He knows we're going to be tempted to wonder how on earth could God possibly forgive me? when I've done this stupid, idiotic thing again? And the answer is always the same. Because when he gave you grace, he gave it lavishly. Far more than enough. 
is provided for our forgiveness, for our liberation from spiritual enslavement. God, in his wisdom, gives us grace to meet our every need. By way of application, we want to say that if you want to live a spiritually vital life, you need to regularly rehearse and meditate on these truths. That, we could do a sermon on the first 12 verses of Ephesians, 14 verses of Ephesians, and that's two weeks. We're lingering here for a reason. This is really important. We're not going to go at this scope through the whole rest of the book. I got a phone call this week. I wanted to know, are you going to be like seven years in Ephesians? <laughs> no, we're not. But we're lingering here. We're lingering here because we want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. We need to regularly rehearse and meditate on these truths. This is the gospel. And Paul says that it's the gospel in Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And salvation there does not simply mean when I received Christ. That's conversion. But salvation is speaking of my conversion. It's also speaking of the power of sanctification so that I can live a holy life. And my salvation also purchases my body when I'm glorified in the presence of Christ. That's the power of salvation in the gospel. So the gospel is the power to forgive us of our sins in the past, to sanctify us in the present, and to glorify us in the future. The gospel is the power for all of that. So you better get a handle on the gospel. Okay? The gospel is what encourages us when we're feeling discouraged, when we're trapped in sin. The gospel is what strengthens us in spiritual darkness. It's what encourages us when we're beset with affliction and trial. That's the gospel. We need to be going back to the gospel again and again and again every day. If we aren't regularly meditating on the gospel, then our hope's going to fade and our joy is going to evaporate. It's the truth of the gospel, our redemption in Christ, that keeps us afloat in a world that is always trying to pull us under. We have to live in in, in doxology and praise in response to what God has done for us in Jesus. And finally, as we close, if you're here today and... Maybe you think you're a believer, I don't know, but as, as this has gone on, you're like, I'm not sure if I've experienced that. Some of you may know, I don't know anything about what you're talking about. That can happen. That may very well be why you're here today. That needs to be addressed. So ask God to reveal to you your spiritual state. Maybe he's done it already. Ask God to reveal to you your enslavement to sin and your need for a savior. Ask God to do that. And we'd be happy to pray with you today if that's where God has you. May God give us the grace to ponder long and hard the lavish grace of God he's given to us when he redeemed us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the physical ravages of sin for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. God, there's a song that says we glory in our Redeemer, and we certainly do. We glory in our Redeemer. We're so grateful that our Redeemer lives. Father, I pray that you would help me, that you would help all of us to feed on this and be strengthened by it. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are going to end our time worshiping through songs.